Welcome to another exciting message from Journey Church, meeting weekly in Northwest Calgary. At Journey Church, we're encountering God and embracing people. I wonder if God was on holidays during this book and he just took a nap. But we do know that the book of Esther is part of the canon. So by the canon, we believe that it's the inspired word of God. And we know that um, the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, tells us that all scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and, um, and for training in righteousness. And so, uh, as a church, we want to teach the entire counsel of God, which is why we're going to teach through the book of Esther. So today we're talking about Esther chapter 2. And um, I will say my brain has been in the book of poor Dave all day, all week long. He's got to hear me, like, making reference. Do you know when you start getting into something and then that, that's all you can see anywhere you go? So I'm sorry, if we have coffee in the next month... This is what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> uh, but let's start at chapter, we're, we're going to, today we're going to, I'm going to teach it. Part of the reason also that we like to do this a number of times during the year is um, I, I want us to learn how to study the Bible. And um, I'm not against topical things, but I think there's real um, benefit to us going line by line through the scripture and saying, what does God what is God saying to us here? I think that helps us um, just to remember that any of us can get into the words for ourselves. If, if all you're doing is reading your Bible here on Sunday, it would be like you saying, I'm on a new diet. I only eat once a week, Sunday morning. And, and if that were true in your physical life, what would happen to you? You would die um, and we'd have to have some kind of an intervention for you. So let me just have like, for some of us, let's have a spiritual intervention today and say if the only time you're into God's word is on Sunday morning, your spirit is in danger of dying. So this is why we're going to read it word for word. Okay, here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for, a beautiful young, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Now, if you're reading this as a bedtime story to your children at night, this has already become very problematic. There's a lot of language in here that you're going to have to kind of talk about or not. Okay, so let them be placed in the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, it gets better, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Okay, so let, let's just talk about Xerxes for a minute. We talked about him last week. Um, basically, he is not a nice person. You don't want to meet him in an alley. and You, in fact, don't want to meet him anywhere. Um, the, the movie 300, I don't recommend you watch it, but if you have, you'll understand. Uh, that it was made about King Xerxes. He conquered the entire known world at the time, and he was brutal, just brutal. You looked at this man sideways, and he killed you. Uh, he had 
millions of people in his army, 10,000, in fact, people who are called assassins. There is a video game made after King Xerxes. Like, this guy is... Um, He's something the world had never seen before. People who lived in his uh, kingdom, in fact, uh, thought of him as God. They, they actually thought that he got his words from the sun, and the sun uh, was the ultimate deity. And so they saw King Xerxes as God. Um, what's interesting about this uh, passage here is it says here later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, what you need to know about this is that it's not like, like he banished Vashti in chapter one. And if you didn't listen to the podcast, you can listen to it last week. We talked about it. It's not like just like a, and a couple hours later, his fury subsided. Historians tell us that, that this little part here was four years later. Okay, so now let's talk about this. Have, have any of you ever been so mad that you think you'll never be mad? You'll never not be mad again. Oh, you all are not either. You have never had children before. <laughs> or you're lying. And we're in church right now. Some of you have very good poker faces. Like, I never, I never feel rage. I just feel joy and peace all the time. I don't relate to this scripture at all. Okay. So if you've been alive for a couple of weeks, if you've passed the age of two, you relate to this. How I know that is each of you, when you were two, you had things called a tantrum. I know we blame it on other people and you were perfect. My children always say this to me. Mom, you seemed like you were perfect when you were small. You never made any mistakes. I am repenting for this false thing that I am. My parents are here. They know this is not true. Uh, but, but Xerxes, listen, he, for four years, three to four years, historians tell us, this man was mad. And in this time, he not only uh, lost Vashti, he also lost great wars. In the three to four years after he deposed of Queen Vashti, he marched on the Greeks. And uh, he basically thought he was the stuff and he was going to win. And he did not. Can I get a little less on my mic? Thanks. He, um, he, he went and went to the Greeks and um, he said this, something like this to the Greeks. When they got to the Greek uh, gates, he said, you're going to need to surrender your arms. And the Greek army spoke this back to him. You're going to have to come get those arms. And the Greeks destroyed the Persians. And it was sort of the beginning of the downfall of Xerxes as a historical figure. In fact, if you were to join the Greek army today, they still, they still use this kind of like rhetoric, this motto, you're going to have to come get us kind of deal. And that dates right back to Xerxes, which is important for us to know because we, we need to know and understand that the Bible is not just myths or fables. It's grounded in history and that there's historical um, evidence for that. But there's a few things this five, um, these five verses teach us and I think help us to understand uh, this morning. The first thing is this. If we're not careful, our anger will determine the course of our lives. So we often think about anger as just like a fleeting, um, a fleeting sort of feeling. Like we're, oh, I'm going to be angry and then I won't be angry. But the truth is this. There's many people in the world, just like Xerxes, that let their anger carry on for year after year after year 
after year, and it becomes them. And it determines um, how they live their life. And I, I think as Christians, we have to remember that uh, Jesus, that the, the scriptures talks about this in Ephesians 4.26. It says, don't, in your anger, be angry and do not sin. I do like that it says that. Like it actually says, it's okay. If you're angry, it's okay. But don't sin in your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, and this is really important for us to understand. Some of you are here and somebody has done you wrong. Maybe like Xerxes, you feel a little bit like somebody has disrespected you. And if you're honest, you've let that, that, that seed of anger and discontentment grow in your life for year after year after year. Can, can I just encourage you today to dis, let, let us be people that the scriptures called us to be? It's okay that you were angry, but don't, let, don't sin in your anger. And I know I, I, we can't get into a whole thing about this today, but, but sometimes the way that we get rid of our angry is not sometimes, all the time. We have to confess it. Some of you haven't even admitted to yourself that you're angry. And, and I, I think we all, it would do us all good to go, yeah, I'm angry about that. So I, I got to be honest with you, this was tested in my life yesterday. I had a circumstance that happened to me. And do you know when someone... It wasn't any of you here, so don't, don't, don't be looking around right now. I just had like a little bit of a weird incident with somebody, and I was hot. I was so angry. I was angry like, you know when your, bo your body kind of shakes? Like you're like, I'm not angry, I'm not angry, I'm, not, I'm so angry. And I was trying to like, I, I was actually trying to write this message. And I was typing away, but I couldn't type, and I couldn't think. I was so mad. And, uh... I just came to the scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry. I mean, there's going to be things in life that make you angry. It's nonsensical to say, and now that you're a Christian, no one's ever going to make you mad. You're going to be happy all the time, full of joy. And... Okay, so the scripture doesn't tell us that. It says, be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. And in this moment, I just, I just felt like the Lord said, you, ju you just have to release that person can't be stuck in your anger just release them and part of forgiving forgiving is not forgetting forgiving is releasing people to the blessing of God so yesterday I'm sitting and typing away and I decided to say God I release that person to your blessing I'm just not going to hold it because I don't want to be written about me four years later after her anger subsided what kind of a history are we leaving? What kind of a legacy are we leaving? This is what the book of Esther challenges us to ask. Okay, and then, um, then it says this, and you can't really see it in the English, but if we could look at the Hebrew and have a Hebrew story, you would see it. It says that uh, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And there is this, um, the way that the Hebrew is constructed in this, this verse, uh, basically what Xerxes is is, is going over in his mind is in chapter one his attendant said listen if Vashti doesn't come you let go of her and in chapter two what he's saying here is like he's kind of ticked at his attendants for making this decree uh, it's conjoined to the next verse so we know that looking at the Hebrew what what he's basically saying is he remembered Vashti he remembered how awesome she was and now he's mad at the people that told him to get rid of her but he can't do anything about it because when you're a Persian king and you make a decree there's no going back I want to suggest um, this morning that, um, that we're often prone to do what we've done before. And here's how this scripture shows us this. So he's mad in verse 2. 
that he's gotten rid of Vashti, and he's actually mad at the attendants who in chapter 1 told him, get rid of her. And then I want you to see verse 3. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let's make a search for a new lady. And he says, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. What? And really, when you read this, it's actually supposed to seem ironic here. In the Hebrew, it seems ironic. Like, in the first verse, he's saying this is not a good idea. Now, two verses later, he's like, wow, what a good idea. Let's do that. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, this is how many of us live our lives, yes? You know, you get in debt, and then you think, we got to pay off all this debt. we got to be in austerity measures. And you, you work really hard to pay off all your debt. And then a year later, it's Christmas. Guess what you do? You go in debt. And if we're not careful... We do the same things. We go back to the same old wells over and over and over again. And it holds us in bondage. It, and why? This is not even a spiritual principle. This is a human principle. That's why the book of Esther is important for us to read. It's human to do that. So we must remember that we are not God. If we do not have God, we will continue to go back to the same things over and over again. And then it sort of brings this into sharp focus. Who we listen to matters. This is why I am, um, I will always contend for an intergenerational church. Young men, you need older men to speak into your lives. If the only people in your lives that are speaking into your lives are people that are equal to you or are below you, you will run into problems every day single time. And the Bible is very clear about this. All throughout the epistles, it talks about young men needing older men. And older men, you need young men to breathe vision and dreams into you again. I watch Matt down here, and he's like worshiping with all of his heart. And some of you have become too dignified to do that. We need one another. We need each other. You can't just have personal attendance. Ladies, if the only people speaking into your life are the people that work for you, you're going to have problems. And so King Xerxes, his anger subsides and he's mad at the people. But then he goes right back to those same people. Get, if you don't have people in your life, get people in your life who are going to tell you the truth, who are going to tell you the truth and press on you. If you haven't felt a little bit pressed on in the last three months, I'm going to suggest that you might not have enough people in your life. Now, you don't get people in your life. Just this is an aside. It has nothing to do with the text. But often have people say, well, I've never had anybody mentor me. And they kind of say it like they're angry. Like people, have you ever, have you ever said to somebody? Now, that, let me just say this to you, too. Maybe don't go to somebody and, like, formally ask them, hello, will you mentor me? Because that sounds like, do I have to adopt you? Are you looking for food and laundry service? This is just an aside. If you want to get people in your life, maybe say this to them. Hey, could I take you out for lunch today? Because, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are or how old you are. If somebody gives you food, you will say yes to it every single time. Unless, of course, you don't, and then we could have a healing service for you. But, I mean, if you need a mentor, go find one. Don't look for, one to, look for somebody to look for you. Go find somebody. And this is part of us. This is part of us saying out loud to ourselves that we are not God. And some of us, we've, we've lived our lives like we're King Xerxes. Like we are God and we have all the answers. And we keep 
ending up in ditches and wondering why. And, and finally, uh, I think we find from these four verses that you can't fill a void in your life with anybody but God. So King Exorcist, who has everything, everything, anything the world has seen this man has now, and yet he's mad for four years because he's missing, because he doesn't have himself a woman. And he's trying to fill a void. I mean, this is not rocket science. This is just, so you read the story and think, this is what the man's trying to do. He's trying to fill a void with a spouse. Some of you have thought to yourself, oh, I will be okay once I get married. And all the married people say, ah, isn't that a nice sentiment? You might love being married, but you know that this is not true. One person cannot fulfill your needs or your desires. And even a guy who was the most powerful person the world had ever seen was still trying to fill his life with women. And I, maybe it's not women or men for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's power or money. But I, I just want to say that this scripture reminds us. He's furious for four years because he's got nobody. If we don't have God. Listen, some of you are trying. I mean, we're all, we're all um, we all do this. We try to stuff our lives with things in place of God. And the truth is, it will never work. Okay. So then the scripture goes on. It says, Now there was in a citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair. Can I just say that Mordecai is um, it's a name from the god Marduk. Okay, so it would kind of like be naming one of your children uh, the name of a Hindu god or the name... Uh, of another religion's God, okay? So Mordecai, you don't, you don't automatically meet him and go, oh, there's like a really great Jewish kid. No, he's named Mordecai, which is an anomaly of Marduk, okay? This is important for us to understand. So, uh, and he was the son of Jair, the son of Shimni, the son of Kish. This is important. We're going to talk about this in a second. Who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because he had, she had neither father nor mother. Hadassah is Esther's uh, Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. Uh, her Persian name meant Myrtle. Hadassah uh, was a name that she kept uh, under wraps. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when he, her father and mother died. Uh, before you start to thinking Mordecai was like this really amazing person, this was traditional in this culture when a mother or father would die. They didn't really adopt them. Um, we kind of have anglicized it and said that, oh, Mordecai, he was like into adoption, and people have preached messages on adoption, and um, it's okay, but it, he didn't actually adopt her. What, what he did was take care of her, and, um, and that was his duty his duty as uh, a, a man living in Persia at that time. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women who were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was, had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. That word favor is really important. We're going to look at it in a second. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best palace in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. 
Okay, so a couple of things about this portion of the scripture from Esther chapter 2. First, we find out that Mordecai, yes, his name is Marduk, but it's also really important to understand that he is a descendant of Saul. Saul, um, if you've read the Old Testament, Saul was the first king, um, the first king of Israel. Saul sinned, though, and God said to Saul, your line, no more. Bye-bye. I'm going to not pick your descendants anymore. I'm going to pick David. And your descendants are, you've messed it up. You've sinned. You've done the wrong thing. It's interesting now, though, that Mordecai, who basically becomes the hero of our story, is from the descendant of Saul. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about the nature of God? It tells us that it, where you are doesn't have to determine your destiny. Some of you, if you think about your lives and where you're from, you think, well, like, I'm just not from that kind of a family. And essentially, that's what Mordecai was from. He was from a family who God had said, the anointing on your life to be king is not going to happen anymore. But yet we see the redemption of God at the end. We know that Esther was written, one of the latest books in the Old Testament written. So at the end of the Old Testament, God says, yes, 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 but yes to you, Mordecai. And this is the nature of the God we serve, that he is a God who is always redeeming people, always redeeming people's legacies and stories. And maybe you're from a legacy or a story that's not very powerful. The kind of God we serve says that where you're from doesn't determine your destiny, that he can use you. Okay, the second thing we find here is that hiding our identity always leads to problems. Okay, so um, Mordecai was a Jewish person, but he had this Persian name, so he didn't have to tell anybody he was Jewish, and he didn't. And he basically put his whole family on lockdown and said, like, don't, don't tell anybody you're Jewish, okay, because this is going to be problematic. Um, we know that Mordecai was part of the contingent of Jewish people who didn't go back to Jerusalem when, Cy when Cyrus was king. Uh, and most historians will tell us that, we, I mean, we don't know the reason that Mordecai didn't go back, but we can assume that there was some kind of disobedience. Jerusalem wasn't like the happening city. It was a city with walls that were crushed down, and I don't know what city I'd make it akin to, but not a cool one. Whatever your uncoolest city is, that's what Jerusalem was like. And Susa was this happening city where they were having parties and there was gold couches and linen. And I don't know why linen, like that, that sounded weird. And there was linen there. Amazing. But that was a big deal back then, okay? So like there was a lot of fancy stuff. So Mordecai stayed. He was in, so in, in some way, and we know he was not living the way that God required that Jewish people would live at that time. We know this because um, he was eating all the food, and uh, there's nothing about him sticking up his hand and going, this is not right. We know that this, um, this wasn't really pleasing to God, because if you butt it up against the story of Daniel, Daniel lived during the reign of Darius, who was King Xerxes' Uh, father. And when Daniel was living under Darius, he said, listen, hello, I'm not to, permitted to eat the food. I'm not going to eat it. Darius said, uh, nobody's going to pray. Daniel prayed and got thrown in the lion's den for it. So there's precedent setting that God actually expected and required people that lived under occupation to still live for him because God was, God. okay, so Mordecai's not really living for God. He's sort of like, oh, please, nobody find out. I think Mordecai looks like a lot of us in the 21st century. 
I think a lot of us, like, please don't anybody ask me what I did on the weekend. Please nobody really ask me if I'm a Christian, because I don't want to be one of those weirds. But I want to say that this scripture shows us that a lot of problems happen when we begin doing this. And you know, I was thinking, well, it's easy to stand up here and say, hey, everybody, stop hiding your identity. Everybody, you should just be out of the closet as a Christian. You should tell everybody. And I knew that if I was sitting here listening to me, I would be thinking, who are you? Do you, you work in a church, right? You don't work where I work. And uh, I think what we have to get under is, why do we do this? Like, wh why did Mordecai do that? Why did Mordecai do it, but why do we do it? Is it because, like, we are um, afraid? I think sometimes, I think it's sometimes because we're afraid. We're afraid that we don't have the right answers. We're afraid that we don't. Um, I, I think it's because we're unsure of ourselves sometimes. But I think ultimately it's because we deal with shame. And I don't know that it's always shame about God. I think it's, I think if we're honest, it's shame about ourselves. I think a lot of us deal with this like underlying sense of like, God, I, I can never represent you because like I, I make mistakes and I swear at my cubicle and I get mad at my boss and I'm angry for two weeks. And so a lot of us, what we do, we say, God, like I wouldn't be a good representative of you. So like, I'm just gonna not say anything. What this creates and this scripture actually shows it is it creates this weird sense of passivity. Uh, research, psychological research tells us that both shame and passivity go hand in hand. Do you ever wonder this? How did Mordecai let Esther be taken by Haggai? I mean, we read it and just go, yeah, of course, that was normal. Now, dads, let me speak to all the dads in the room. You imagine that you, or even the moms in the room, or the aunts, or just anybody who's like a protector of people. You have some people coming to get your kid. She's beautiful. And they're going to put her in a sex contest. Because let's not kid ourselves. This is what Esther was being put into. A sex contest. And Mordecai, now if, if it's me, they have come to the wrong house. You come to my house to get my daughter. You are 16 or older. We, uh, oh, you're 16 or you, I don't care how old you are. You come to the house to get my daughter. You are not. Okay, so like, do you ever wonder, how did Mordecai just go, okay. Now we know he wasn't really excited about this. How do we know that? Because the scripture says that he went every day to see if she was okay. But he was kind of this very passive, like, oh, are you okay? Now, parents, we've all been in this position before where we've gone passive, or anybody, you, anybody who's alive, you've had this, where you don't really want to, like, stand up to something, but you know it's not right, so then you just go, um, is everything okay? And, and we get passive. I want to suggest today that wherever you find passivity in your life, that probably attached to that somewhere is shame. We, we must get under that shame. We must get under the shame. If we don't get under shame in our lives, this is why uh, the, the idea of legalism in the church is so damaging. 
Because when you get legalism, what it ties itself to is shame. And when you get shame, it ties itself to passivity. And then all of a sudden, nobody's coming to Jesus anymore. And this is why I'm convinced that if you look at the numbers in the church in the Western world, the numbers are going like this. But I think it's all tied to shame. And I think we see this here. Es, uh, that Mordecai is hiding his identity because of shame. Maybe because of shame because he didn't leave and go to Jerusalem. Maybe because of shame because he's not living out the way. But it, but it, but it becomes passive, passivity. So how do we, how do we get rid of that? Uh, it, because we see that, listen, your passivity... You, maybe you think today, well, I'm hiding my identity, but it doesn't matter. It, doesn't, it just affects me. But this scripture shows us that it didn't just affect Mordecai. It affected Esther. It affected, it affected all kinds of people. Your passivity, your hiding of your identity will not just affect you, but will affect everyone around you. Parents, if you want your kids to grow up and serve the Lord, you cannot afford to hide your identity. You cannot afford to become passive. If you want your life to count for something, you, you can't just live in a passive way. So how do we deal with our shame? I think we have to confess it. I think we actually have to declare with our mouths, God, I've been living with shame. I, I've been living like I'm ashamed, I'm afraid. I'm a, we just need to say all those things. And then John, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then James 5.16 goes a bit further and says, therefore confess your sins to each other so that you'll be healed. I think our society, I, I mean, I, I, psychologists are saying this, even ones that do not know Jesus, that we're having an epidemic of passivity, particularly around young, young people. But I, I, I think that the scripture shows us the way to get rid of that. The way that we build courage is by saying, God, help me to deal with my shame. And the way that we deal with shame is saying, God, I, I, confessing that shame to God and then confessing it to one another, not so that people can gossip about you, but so that you can get free. You get free and you get healed when you speak to one another the truth, something about the truth that sets us free. And then we have to ask for courage. Courage just doesn't come naturally. We must focus on the need for courage. And then we got to act on courage. I was saying to Dave last night, so a couple of days ago, on Monday or Tuesday, I was, um, I was just spending some time. I was driving from Banff, and the kids were sleeping, and I'm driving, and I'm talking to Jesus about, like, me. And I, I was, like, I was kind of crying out to God, saying, God, like, I, I want to be a person that stands up for justice and, I feel like, ah, oh God, I, I, and what I was saying to God was like, I don't want to just be a person that gets up and talks on Sunday morning, God. I want to be somebody that, like, does something. And so, like, I'm kind of having this kind of travailing prayer to God. And um, So then I, you know, you pray something, but you, you're not really expecting, I was expecting it to come in a different way. And then yesterday I had this chance to be able to um, speak to something that was maybe a justice issue. Oh, like in every part of me wanted to just like curl up on the couch and go, I don't, you ever had a moment like this? Like, I just don't want to deal with this. And when I do, then I, when I, how I know I'm doing this is I will watch shows of survivalists, of people who live in the wilderness by themselves. Because I just don't want to deal with anything or anyone. And I always think, 
plan B. If this doesn't work out, I could go to the Arctic and live there. I couldn't. I would die in one week for sure, but, but I tell myself this. When we pray prayers like, God, help me, whatever your prayer may be, God's going to give you opportunities. But then we actually have to take courage and say, yeah, okay, okay, God, I'm going to do it. So you get out of shame by saying, God, I've had shame this way. Help me to have courage. Listen, God's going to give you an opportunity to have courage. Some of you are going to pray that prayer in the next five minutes. You're going to say, God, I've been hiding my identity at work. Help me to have courage. I can guarantee you this that on Monday or Tuesday, somebody's going to give you the opportunity to unveil yourself. And you've got to decide now that you're going to take that opportunity. That you're going to say, God, I'm not going to no longer be passive and full of shame. I'm going to actually walk with the courage of God. And then the scripture uh, goes on. It says, before a young woman's turn came to go into exercise, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. I always think that sounds so nice. And then, ladies, you think about, you know when you go to the salon for like two hours? And by the end of the two hours, you're like, I, I never want to see a salon again. 12 months of beauty treatment. For, I always wonder what did they do. But anyways, prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. That is bringing the 80s makeup to a whole other level. Six months of makeup. Wow. Okay. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her and to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgar, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is where you must read in between the text lines. It doesn't tell you what Esther was doing, but I'm going to tell you she wasn't having a prayer meeting with the king. Now, this part is mind-blowing to us. Like, we think, oh, God put this in the Bible? This is in the Bible. And for some of us, it's offensive. We're, like, offended. We are, like, wanting to put God on a timeout. I have nothing to say about that except for that God is bigger than our thinking of him, okay? So now I'm not saying God was pleased. I'm not saying, I, but it happened, and I'd like you to notice something, that God is not losing the plot line over this. Some of you think you've made bad decisions in your life, and you think, well, that's it for me. And, and it's even hard for you to come to church because you've made bad decisions. God just, he's going to use everything in your life. He's going to use everything in your life. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean that we sin more so that grace will abound. But it does tell some of us that are trapped in this cycle, like God can't ever use me. I'll never be used. I've done bad things. It just keeps going. No, there's, no, there's no like big like, <gasps> God's not doing that. He just continues. Okay, so when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihail to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. That favor, the word favor there is a really important word. It is the word hesed, and hesed is a, a concept in the Bible that, um, that it, it wraps itself in an entire cluster of love, Mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, and covenant faithfulness. 
the word hesed that's used there tells us that God is standing in the middle of the story. Now, I, w- I want you to think about that for a second. Then in the middle of this, what we just read, that the hesed of God is there. If this doesn't blow your mind and make you feel a little bit like, I think there was a mix-up here. This is the theology we believe, that God stands in the middle of everything. Some historians believe that Esther, that there, and this is not even really up for debate, there was a power imbalance here. Esther is a poor orphan girl who's beautiful, but beauty is all she's got going for her. And you've got a king who's the most powerful person on earth putting 400 women through this kind of a contest. And yet, the favor of God rested on Esther. The hesed of God rested on Esther. It's interesting that in Jewish thought, the word hesed and the word sedeka are always combined together. The word sedeka means righteousness, justice. And in Jewish thought, the idea that the hesed and the sedeka of God would be like separated out is nonsense. Hesed and sedeka always went hand in hand. Okay, so this is where this is mind blowing. Because Esther had the favor of God and the justice of God was walking with her in the middle of a situation that looked extremely unjust. And I want you to know today that no matter what you're in the middle of, no matter where you find yourself, no matter if you find yourself in a position of abuse and neglect, and I I don't know whether people have done you wrong, the God that we serve tells us that his favor, his favor goes before us. The hesed of God walks with you. And the sedekah of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God is with you, surrounding you. And this is why we don't lose heart. No matter what we're doing, this is not, understand this, this was not about Esther. Uh, we've, I've heard it preached before, it's because Esther was very righteous She was lovely, beautiful on the outside, and beautiful, even more beautiful on the inside. The scripture doesn't tell us that. It just says she was a babe. That's all we get. And it tells us she ate all the wrong foods, which was very important to Jewish people at the time. She was eating all the nachos and pig's feet. I, I I don't really know that nachos were on the do not eat list, but they weren't. Pig's feet, yes. We actually don't know that she was eating pig's feet either, just so that you don't write me a letter this week about that. But Persia wasn't known to follow Jewish dietary custom. Okay, so she wasn't really walking with God, and yet the hesed of God was with her. God will use you. Now, this doesn't give us, this doesn't say, oh, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. No, but it does tell us that when we fall down, that God's favor still rests on us, that he still walks with us. Some of you have lived under condemnation, and so what you've done, what you've done is you've hidden. You've pretended because you're worried that, like, if if I don't have all the things, then God will, like, go away from me. The book of Esther tells us that his favor walks with us. 
no matter where we are. And that's the kind of, that's the scandal on. That's the scandalous nature of the grace and the beauty of the mercy of God. And some of us have to wrestle that out. Some of you, even as I speak this, you're like trying to do theological gymnastics in your head right now because you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound right. What about holiness? Pastor Jess, how come you're not teaching about holiness? And there is a place in scripture where we do talk about holiness. In the book of Esther, we're going to get there. But what we start off with and what we must be grounded in is this covenantal love and favor of God. And this stops us from having a hierarchy amongst ourselves. This stops us from having that Instagram life where we compare ourselves to ourselves. It reminds us that the Hesed of God has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. Everything to do with God. I'm going to ask uh, just Abel to come to the keyboard. Okay, so here, here are some questions that we got to ask ourselves, that these characters in Esther chapter 2 ask us to ask ourselves. I said to Dave, I feel like every four, every four verses of the, it was like a whole sermon, so I apologize for the not one thought. Here's, here's the question, though, I think we, the questions we've got to ask ourselves. Is our anger controlling us? Are some of you like King Xerxes today, after his anger had subsided four years later? Who are we listening to and getting our advice from? Do we keep doing the same things over and over again, like we're mad and then, oh, we're right back to doing it again? Am I trying to fill a void in my life with something other than God? I think for all of us, we've we got to ask ourselves these questions on an ongoing basis. This is why the Bible, listen, this is why the Bible's not just a bunch of cute fairy tales. It's actually life to us. If we'll let it speak to us, it will become life to us. If we actually uh, contend with it and wrestle with it. Okay, so here are the questions Mordecai, the, 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 the character of Mordecai asks us to ask ourselves. Have I limited what God can do in my life because of where I am from? What my family of origin was? Who my people have been? how long I've known the Lord, what I've been associated with. I, I, I want to say that there are some of you here today who are called to full-time ministry. Can I, let me just, who are called to full-time ministry, and you've run, you've run, because you just think, oh, like, I'm just not that kind of a person. Like, I, have I limited what God could do in my life because of who I am from, where I am? Am I living with shame that needs to be confessed? Some of you need to take stock. Of, am I living like a hidden identity? And is the real reason for that hidden identity because I've got shame around who I am, how I live? Do I need to confess that shame so that I no longer live with passivity anymore, but I can live out front in the fullness of what God has for me? These are difficult things to admit to ourselves. But we must. We must. And finally, from Esther, I think, I think we've got to take stock of where we have received the hesed of God in our lives. There's something so comforting about that to know that you're walking in the favor of God, that his covenantal love for you is full and true and beautiful and always there. And it might not, I, I'm sure that Esther didn't feel like when she was in the 
the harem of the concubine. I'm sure she wasn't saying, wow, I've really got a lot of favor on my life. My life is good. I'm living with four other, other ladies. I'm in a sex competition right now. Hooray, has said. Like, think about how she would have felt. This is like the worst competition of all time. It doesn't get worse than that. And yet, the favor of God rested with her there. No matter where you find yourself today, God's favor walks with you. And what does that mean for us? It means that we just must keep walking. The thing not to do right now is to give up and go, well, like I'm in this thing, this is the worst, I guess God hates me, forget it. The thing to do is to square your shoulders back and say, well, God can use anything. And even if I put myself here, God can use it. And even if I've made bad decisions that have got me here, God can use it because his covenantal love walks with me because his grace envelops me. Moms and dads, your kids are away from God and you feel like you get in your bed at night and you think about all the things could have, should have, would have done. The said of God rests in your home and God will use it. The thing to do though is not to give up continue to walk and I believe that God is going to redeem all things we're going to see this in the book of Esther and, and I'm going to believe that God is going to speak to all of us would you stand to your feet this morning would you just close your eyes and bow your heads just for a minute I just want you to think about these questions I, I believe that the spirit of God speaks to us in these moments Jesus said that my sheep, they know my voice. They know my voice and they listen to me. Right here in this moment, God is speaking. He's always speaking to us. And if we'll just, just stop just for a moment, would you just, just push aside? Would you just ask God to help you push aside your lunch plans? Push aside all the things that you have to do this week? Would you just say, God, would you just speak to me? I believe one of those questions is going to rise to the top. Maybe God's going to give you a picture. Maybe he's going to speak to you. And just in this moment, would you say yes to God? Would you say yes, God? Maybe you need to confess shame. Maybe there's anger in your life that's been controlling you. trying to fill a void in your life with something other than God. So God, in this moment, I pray that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, heart to obey and respond. Give us courage, God, to follow you, even to the difficult places. And I thank you that your mercy and that your grace is chasing us down. your love, your said, your covenantal love is for us, that we are in your favor. Maybe you're here and you've never made a decision for Jesus. Or maybe you made that decision a long time ago, but if you're honest, you, you haven't been walking in that. Today's your day. 
favor of God has taken you right to this moment. And we believe that when, when God comes to us, when we, have, when we can have an encounter with him right here in this place, that we don't have to do any gymnastics, but he just says to us that if we'll come to him, then he'll come to us. We just have to raise our hands and say, yeah, God, here I am. Maybe that's some of you just need to just pray that prayer today. You just need to say, Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. And we believe then that all of us have the opportunity to walk in the favor of God for all the days of our lives. So Jesus, I thank you for every person that's here. God, give us courage to say yes to you. Yes to you. For the person that's doing that for the very first time today, God, give them courage to make that decision. We'll give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to us today. For more information about who we are, head over to myjourney.church or look for us on your favorite social media outlet.